0: Uh, Acts chapter 14, we were uh, told of the end of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. They're back in Syria and Antioch. They're back in the church where uh, they started the journey and they're celebrating all that God has done. Churches have been planted. Elders have been appointed in these churches. Uh, All is well, or so it seems, as we enter into chapter 15, but we're about to be confronted with conflict again. It said that if you can find two people that think exactly alike on everything, one of them is not thinking. (laughs) And and I believe that's true because I I found through the years of ministry in the church wherever there's a will, there's a won't. (laughs) Wherever someone has faith for something, there's always a naysayer. Wherever one doctrine is spoken, there's always another view. Somebody wants one thing, somebody else wants something else, right? And so we we see conflict in the church. All people disagree. Do you agree? I trying to catch you there. If you're here today and you're looking for a church where everyone is in complete agreement on absolutely everything, keep looking. Because all people, even spiritual people, disagree, right? And if we're honest, sometimes our disagreements are over trivial things. I've heard of churches that have split over... The color of the carpet, now that's a trivial thing, right? But but sometimes our, our disagreements are because we care and, and, we, and we care deeply. And so to be unified with another believer does not mean to agree on everything that believer stands for or believes in or does. The truth of the matter is that sometimes Scripture says there must be divisions in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is writing to the early church in Corinth and he writes these words. He says, when you come together as a church, here's what I hear, that there are divisions among you. And he says, I believe that in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In other words, there has to be sometimes a division. So we say, wait, who's right on this? Let's, let's work this through. Jude verse 3, uh, Jude writes this. He says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to contend, to be contentious. Now, you might say, well, pastor, I don't want to be contentious. That sounds bad, right? But to contend, it simply means this, to put up a good fight for the faith. Listen, if, if someone comes along and outright denies one of the pillars of the gospel, we're not supposed to just stand back and say, well, it's no big deal. Let's not start a fight, right? Let's, let's not be divisive. Let's just sing another Round of kumbaya we're gonna be okay right let's just carry on no honestly that would not be loving at all when it comes to the key doctrines of our faith the most loving thing that we can do sometimes is call someone out and say that's not what the Word of God says remember we've already seen disagreements in the church in the book of Acts again Acts chapter 6 there was this disagreement or uh, over the distribution to the widows and and here in this chapter we see a disagreement, but it's over something far more important. It's over this question, how does a person get saved? How does a person become born again and receive salvation? And here's the question, I want you to write this down, put it in your phone, whatever you gotta do, but I want you to take this question down and I I want you to make it personal this week. Because for some of you in this room, you're gonna have to wrestle with this one a little bit. Here's the question, does Jesus save me or do I save myself with Jesus's help? Does Jesus save me, or do I save myself with Jesus's help? I know those things sound the same, but they're radically different. And the dispute that we see here in chapter 15, unfortunately, is a dispute in the church today, why? Because honestly, people have a hard time with the free gift of grace. Most people tend toward religion because Religion is comfortable. I, I know that if I, if I just do these things, I can earn God's favor. And if not uh, earn it, at least I'll, I'll know that he'll love me more, right? And so we have this difficulty with the finished work of the cross and with the free gift of grace. Can I just say the early church did as well? Look at verse 1. It tells us this, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, who were these men that were teaching this? Well, they were known as the Judaizers or the circumcision faction. They were believers from a a Jewish background, probably Pharisees, former Pharisees. Now, later on, Paul's going to refer to these guys as troublemakers. So they they come into the the congregation in Antioch that, again, Paul and Barnabas established this church. They invested their lives into the people. They pastored them before being sent out on their missionary journey, right? Right. But these Judaizers come in behind them with their doctrine. And it's interesting, they don't plant their own churches. It's interesting how heresy develops. A lot of people won't start their own church. They'll just find a church that's already started and they just kind of work their way in and begin to undo what's been taught. And so these men are going from church to church. They're following behind Paul and Barnabas, all the churches they planted. In fact, they make their way all the way into Galatia. And Paul writes his letter to the Galatians. He, again, he calls them troublemakers. Galatians 1, verse 6, he says to the church there, he says, I marvel, I'm astonished that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. You're turning away, which is not another. In a sense, they're not preaching a whole different gospel. I mean, they're saying they're believers, they're saying we believe, but he says, they're really troubling you, and here's why. They, they want to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ, they want to change it just just a little bit, and he says this. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel to you, then what we they, what we have preached to you already, let them be accursed. The Greek word there is anathema. It's it's strong language. He's basically saying if someone comes and tries to preach another gospel to you, he's basically saying let them go to hell. That's what he's saying there. Galatians five twelve. He says this about these guys. He said, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I read that, I'm like, Paul, why don't you tell us how you really feel, right? (laughs) He's saying you're so big on circumcision, go all the way, guys. (laughs) Now, let's be honest, that sounds a bit contentious, right? That sounds a a bit divisive. This is not a a kumbaya moment, but you have to ask the question, why is Paul speaking like this, right? Why is he so fired up about this issue? Because here's the thing, he understands how dangerous this teaching can be if it continues. It's like trying to mix oil and water. They're, they're trying to mix the law and grace. They're trying to add to the finished work of the cross. In a sense, they're trying to stitch up the torn veil. Remember Luke 23, the veil of the temple was torn in two. When Christ died on the cross, the the veil was torn in two. And it it was a clear sign that God was opening the way freely for those in the future to come into a relationship with him simply through what Jesus did on the cross. But these Judaizers, these these Pharisees who are now saved, again, they have a Jewish background, and they they think, no, no, you got to go through the law to get to Jesus. What they're effectively saying, though, is let's stitch that veil back up let's make it harder for people not easier god made it easier but but we're gonna fix that we're gonna help god out and we're gonna add some rules and regulations that god never intended they're going to stitch up the veil now why is that so crazy well if it's a finished work that jesus did on the cross then you and i coming along and trying to add to it is insane right it's as insane as me going to the museum in the city an art museum and looking at a Van Gogh or a Picasso and saying, you know what, he wasn't really on that day. He's kind of off. Give me a Sharpie, right? <laughs> L- let me fix that, right? I, I see some flaws. I'm, I'm going to fix what he did, right? And-, and-, and so think about it because that's what it's like when you and I approach the finished work of Jesus on the cross and we say, you know what, I'm going to add to that with my good works. Something missing there. Let me add to it. And, and so he says this, be careful of these troublemakers because they're actually perverting the gospel." I feel bad for Paul and Barnabas here. I mean, they're, they're flying high. They, they went off on this missionary trip. It was awesome in Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Pamphylia, Perga, Cyprus. Other than the stoning, it's been a good missionary trip, right? People are getting saved. The Holy Spirit is moving. But now they're back in the church that they started, and they come back, and they find out it's all divided. Not everyone is happy about what's happening among the Gentiles. The the door has been flung open wide, the veil has been torn, but now there are gatekeepers that are standing there at the veil, and they're saying, we're not gonna let you in unless you're circumcised and you keep the law of Moses. And and so these men come into the congregation at Antioch, and they say, yeah, we agree, Gentiles can become Christians, but only after first becoming Jews. They need to submit to the Jewish rituals, including circumcision, and so, Understand, this was a struggle in the early church because it was difficult for some of these Jewish Christians to believe the Gentiles could be brought into the church as equal members without first submitting to the law of Moses. Now, with men like Cornelius, it was a bit easier because he he was a God-fearer. He had had an understanding uh, of the Jewish law. He was sympathetic to the Jewish ways. But now you have a large number of Gentiles coming to faith and they really have no regard for the Jewish law. They have no intention of keeping the law of Moses. And, and the question is, is that okay? I mean, the idea that a Gentile without a Jewish background, without law keeping, without any ritual of circumcision, without doing anything in the old coven can just come and believe in Jesus and, and now they're admitted into the church and they're guaranteed heaven. Well, honestly, it was offensive to the Jews that spent their whole lives following the law. They didn't understand it. It's it's hard for us to get, but just think how hard it was for them. God had given his covenants in the Old Testament. They believed in the covenant of Moses. They believed in the covenant of Abraham. And and, and they, these Jewish people who were believers, man, they, they kept themselves to these rigid rules and regulations their whole lives. They've gone through all the necessary channels to be acquainted with the one true God of Israel. And now somebody comes along and says, oh, I believe in Jesus, I'm just like you. And they're like, hold on, excuse me, what? You're not just like me, you know? It's hard for them to accept. It's kind of like when somebody comes in and you're watching a movie and they come in the last 10 minutes, right? And then they they think they got it figured out. And you're like, no, you haven't been here. You don't know the plot. You don't know where this thing is going. You don't understand the the character development, right? You can't just come in and see the ending and think you've seen the movie. You haven't. And so they feel like we've gone through all these channels. You haven't. We've been religious our whole life. You haven't. You've been a pagan. Do you you understand the resistance here, right? And, And so as these men teach in the churches that Paul and Barnabas established, they're making a judgment call. And they're saying Paul and Barnabas are wrong. Because as we just saw on their missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas had established churches among the Gentiles without forcing them to come under the law of Moses. Remember Acts 13, Paul is preaching in Antioch, and and here's his message, it's simple, verse 39, he says this, and by him, who is that? It's Jesus. By Jesus, he says, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses, right? Right? Paul's teaching is so clear here that a man could only be made right with God on the basis of what Jesus did. And that issue was so central to the church. This is not a side issue, right? It's the central issue. How are you and I made right with God? This is not a place where they could just say, we'll agree to disagree. I don't even know what that means. We agree to disagree, right? There are some uh, important matters, and this is the heart of Christianity. It needs to be resolved, and it's going to be resolved. But just imagine how the enemy is looking to take advantage of the situation, right? I mean, there are false teachers coming in that teach righteousness as by works. But even if that, that doctrine is not accepted, there's this doctrinal war that threatens to split the church. Churches had disagreements before, but this is certainly the greatest threat to the work of the gospel that we've seen. Look at verse 2. It says, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in great detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. I love the way that Luke puts it here. He says, no small dissension and debate in other words there was a large dissension (laughs) and there was a large debate right why because paul and barnabas had already seen god work so mightily among the gentiles and he did that aside from the law of moses and and they're not just going to stand here and let this be told they are contending for truth and you have to see their hearts to me they're some good shepherds just some good pastors They're willing to confront those who promote false doctrine in the church they established. And so they confront these false teachers, obviously, but when that doesn't work, it's decided, hey, you guys need to go to Jerusalem to have this matter settled by the apostles and the elders. Again, they're not going to just agree to disagree because this is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. And and while they're on their way, they're going to make the best of it. And so they're sharing about the conversion of the Gentiles as they go To Jerusalem, and what does it say? It says it causes great joy. Because Phoenicia is Gentile territory, Samaria is kind of half-Jewish, half-Gentile, not fully Jewish, right? And so you can understand there would be rejoicing in these areas because Gentiles are being saved by faith. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. And so Paul and Barnabas are welcomed into this council. They're, they're sharing about their missionary journey. But then some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, these were Pharisees who became Christians, right? They, they say the same thing, though, that these false teachers were saying in Antioch. Understand, many of those who opposed Paul and Barnabas were Christians who had been Pharisees. And, and because the Pharisees were known for their regard for the law, these were the ones who would tithe on their mint and their cumin, right? They would go in a spice rack and say, we've got to give 10% of that and 10%. I mean, down to the detail, right? And, and if the Pharisees believed anything, here's what they believed, that one could be justified before God by keeping the law. Now, remember, Paul was a Pharisee. And I'm sure he thought this way before he came to Christ, before he saw the Holy Spirit move among the Gentiles. And understand that when we come to Christ, I hope you know this today, that we need to repent, right? We need to to turn from some old ways of thinking. We need to deal with sinful thought patterns in our lives. We need to say, I'm not going to go that way anymore. I'm going to do a 180, right? And I'm going to go towards Jesus. But for a Pharisee to become a Christian It would mean more than just acknowledging that Jesus is that promised Messiah. That Pharisee would need to repent as well. Now you might ask, well, if a Pharisee is so good at keeping the law, what would he have to repent of? Here's what he would have to repent of. He would have to repent from his attempts to justify himself by keeping the law. In other words, he would have to turn away from and instead accept the work of Jesus as the basis of his justification. You see, some of you here this morning, you're pretty religious. Maybe you came to Christ pretty early, and, or, or you grew up in a, in a religious home, and so you don't have a story of great sin and rebellion. You've, you've lived a pretty good life. And maybe there was even this thinking that, you know, I deserve heaven because I'm actually pretty good. That's funny, right? <laughs> but when you come to Jesus, you need to turn from that thinking. You need to turn from this thinking that you can somehow justify yourself and you need to accept the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You see, you can't add the cross to your own self-righteousness. The reality is there is no such thing as self-righteousness. Scripture says that our good works are like filthy rags, meaning on your best day, when you think you got it all together, you still fall short. I still fall short, right? If it weren't for the cross, right? I would fall short. If you remember in Lystra, when Paul and Barnabas are preaching before the people, they they thought they were gods, right? And and Paul and Barnabas have to rebuke them. They have to deal with that way of thinking because they're not gonna allow them to just add Jesus to their list of false gods. They had to turn from their false gods and turn to the true and living God. And, And the reality is these Pharisees had to do the same thing. They had to turn from their own efforts to earn salvation from God by keeping the law and they had to look to Jesus, and it's the same for you and I today. We, we can't just add Jesus to our own righteousness and say, well, now Jesus helps me save myself <laughs> by keeping the law, right? I want to share with you a simple equation. My father always sh- used to share this. I think it's so helpful when we talk about justification, this I- idea of being made right before God, and uh, you know, there are, there are some who would say this, that it's faith plus works that equals righteousness faith plus works equals righteousness right in in other words yes i need to have faith in what jesus did on the cross but i also need to work to earn my salvation to be made righteous i would say to you today that's a false gospel and it's not a gospel of grace because that's not good news right it says not only do i need to have faith but i need to do a a certain amount of things to somehow earn god's approval and, and then it becomes well how do i know if i've done enough and when we fall short what happens we begin to question our salvation and here's the thing i I believe that good works has its place in the life of a believer you just have to put it on the right side of the equation okay it is not faith plus works that equals righteousness it's faith that equals righteousness plus works In other words, it is faith alone in the finished work of Jesus on the cross that justifies me, that that justifies you, right? That makes you right before God. That is enough, and you don't need to add to it. However, when you do place your faith in Jesus— and you're made righteous, the Holy Spirit comes and he lives inside of you. And here's what he'll do. He'll continue to sanctify you and change you. And because of that, good works will naturally flow out of your life, right? And, and so, yes, works is a part of the equation. You just have to get it on the right side of the equation. Does that make sense? Now, now remember, Paul himself, again, he was, he was a former Pharisee. But he came to understand that that Jesus wasn't there to help him in his Phariseeism. No, he understood Jesus was his salvation, not the way to his salvation. Listen to what he writes to the church in Galatia. This is Galatians 2.16. He says, We know, we know this, we're certain of this, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Don't miss that last part. By the works of the law, no one is justified. Listen, if you and I could be justified by the law, then Jesus never had to come. Jesus never had to die on the cross. We could have just worked a little bit harder. We could have earned this thing for ourselves, right? But we can't. And that is why each and every one of us in the room today are so dependent upon the grace of God. When you talk about the grace of God, it's simply this, God's riches at Christ's expense. You've received God's riches today, not at your expense, but at Christ's expense. But some of these Pharisees, they come along, and here's all these people, these Gentiles coming to the Lord, and they say, it's necessary. We've got to circumcise them. We've got to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so really, uh, two things. First of all, they say these Gentile converts need to be initiated into Judaism through the act of circumcision. But they also say they now need to live under the law of moses if they're going to be made right with god if if we're going to accept them into the christian community here's what they got to do again basically they're saying yes we agree that these gentiles can come to jesus we want them to come to jesus but they have to go through the law of moses in order to get to jesus however up until this point paul and barnabas and others have allowed the gentiles to come to jesus without going through the law And you kind of understand their argument here because Israel was God's chosen people. They've they've always been God's chosen people. And so they're thinking, well, they need to become a part of Israel if they want to become a part of God's people. And I'm sure there were passages in the Old Testament they quoted in defense of this because they held so highly to the covenant of circumcision. And so there's this dispute going on in the room. I I really wish we had audio from that day, right? That we could listen in to what was said, and everyone is making their points, and and they're going back and forth. And and once there was much dispute, it tells us that Peter, all of a sudden, he stands up. And here's what he says in verse 7. He says, brothers, you know this, that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them. He's no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by what? Cleansed their hearts by faith. Verse 10 Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a, a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they are. So this group of men, they they come together and they're debating the issue and they they realize, again, we can't just let this sit. And so Peter wants to address the issue and here's how he begins. He begins with a history lesson. He says, guys, I I just want to remind you what God has already done among the Gentiles. He says, I was there. I was a part of it. I saw that God received the Gentiles apart from being circumcised. In other words, God knows their hearts, and he acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did with us. And so the question is, if God has accepted the Gentiles, then why shouldn't the church do the same? If God has received them, the church should receive them. He says, God made no distinction. There's no distinction between us as Jews and them as Gentiles. Now, where does that come from? I believe so much of that comes from the vision that he had of the queen and the young queen, right? But here are these Pharisees, they don't grasp that vision yet because they're still saying these Gentiles are unclean until they go through the law of Moses. But listen to what Peter says, having cleansed their hearts by what? By faith. He's saying the heart is purified by faith, not by keeping the law. And we know this because there were Pharisees in Jesus' time that Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. In other words, he said, you guys look good on the outside, but, but inside you're dead. And here's the truth. Religion without a relationship does nothing to change the heart. Religion without a relationship does nothing to change the heart. But Christians, hear me, we are not only saved by faith, we're also purified by faith, right? And, and so Peter asks this question here, and it, it's a good question, right? He says, Why are you putting God to the test? Why are you you're placing this yoke on these guys? Let's be honest, we couldn't even carry that, right? I, I think Peter knows that there are, are some in the room that would say, Peter, what's the big deal? What's the big deal with making them be circumcised and, and bringing them under the law? But he wants to make it clear to them, here's the deal, guys. If you're honest, you know the law is a yoke. (laughs) It's a yoke that we couldn't bear. I mean, if you go back through through Israel's history, you see the nation was always failing to keep the law, right? On the very day that the law was given on Mount Sinai, they're at the bottom of the mountain, they're worshiping a golden calf, right? Israel's history shows from beginning to end, they could not keep the law, but some of these Pharisees, I think they got a bit of nostalgia, (laughs) They're looking at it through rose-colored glasses, but if they would only be honest and truthful, they would have to consider the fact that Israel failed under the law, and then they would not be so quick to put that same law on the Gentiles. Paul makes the argument in Galatians 3.2, again, if the law doesn't save us, then why do we return to it as a principle by which we live? Paul even goes on to say, in the light of the work of the cross, it's actually an offense to go back to the law. That's why Peter says here, Why are you putting God to the test? And and so he says it's, it's through grace that every one of us is saved, both Jew and Gentile. It's not obedience to the law that saves us. We are truly made right with God simply by grace. It's Jesus plus nothing. There's only one way of salvation. And so he says this, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. I love the way he says that. Because he doesn't say they're going to be saved the way we're saved. That's kind of the whole discussion, right? They need to do what, what we've done in, in order to be saved. But Peter flips it on its head and he says, we as the Jewish people are going to be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they're being saved. In other words, our, our good works, our, our law keeping really accounts for nothing in terms of our salvation. We as Jewish Christians, we're not saved even in part by our law keeping, no, we're made righteous the same way they're made righteous through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a big deal because Peter was a Jew. And so normally he would have put it the other way around. We believe, yeah, they can be saved just like us. <laughs> they can be like us. But he turns it around. He says, guys, we have an opportunity to be saved like them through simple childlike faith in the work of the cross. And in fact, he could say, guys, we need to be saved like that. We need to stop going back to to the law we need to turn away from continuing to try to save ourselves because in the end all those who are saved are saved by grace alone through faith alone in jesus christ alone and look at what happens after peter stands up and shares verse 12 says "And, and all the assembly fell silent they listened to barnabas and paul as they related what signs and wonders god had done through them among the gentiles and so there's all this debate, and I, I again, there's all this noise in the room, but all of a sudden, there is silence. And here's what it shows. Even though they're willing to debate the issue, these men had good hearts, okay? They're willing to listen. They're willing to even change their minds if they're wrong. And so Paul and Barnabas share the stories. It's simply a confirmation that, yes, God has accepted the Gentiles, and we should do the same. And then James, James speaks up. This is not James the apostle, obviously, that James was martyred. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He is the brother of Jude. He's the author of the book of James. He was also known as James the just, right? And what's interesting here is that he actually seems to be the head of the council, not Peter, okay? It, it's, it seems like he's the one that's the, kind of the, the lead elder of the church there in Jerusalem. And he stands up and he says this, brothers, listen to me. Listen to me, Simeon. Now, why does he call him Simeon instead of Peter? It's his Jewish name, right? i are not gonna call him Peter, it's Simeon. In other words, our Jewish brother has just related to us how God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now, the ancient Greek word for Gentiles could be translated nations, it's the word ethne, and the word for people is the word laos, okay? And so the, the Jews were considered themselves to be the laos or the people of God, but would never think of themselves as the ethne because to them those are two contrasting words you're either the people of god or you're those of other nations and so think about how challenging this is for them that god visited the ethne god visited the gentiles to take out of the gentiles a people for himself james is really saying guys now god's people it actually includes the gentiles Verse 15, and with the words of the prophet, the prophets agree, just as it is written, right? James is saying, guys, let's go to the word of God. I want to show you something here. And he goes to Amos 9, verse 11. says this, after this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that remnant of mankind That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. All the Gentiles who are called by my name. Do you know that it actually says in the Old Testament that salvation would come to the Gentiles? And James is saying, hey guys, what God is doing right here and right now among the Gentiles, it actually has a biblical foundation. So often things are considered biblical if they simply don't contradict something in the Bible even though they have no foundation in scripture. But James is saying, we've talked enough, guys. Now let's go to the authority of God's word. Let's settle this debate with God's word. It was John Stott who said, councils have no authority in the church unless it can be shown that their conclusions are in accord with scripture. They line up with the word of God. In other words, the decisions that we make as leaders in the church need to line up with the word of God. But look at this beautiful promise here. I love this. He says, after this, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. Because here's the reality. Judaism of that day had fallen down. In what sense? Well, in the sense that they had rejected their Messiah. But now God is going to rebuild that work by building a church that is made up of both Jew and Gentile. All the Gentiles who are called by my name. When when God says that there would be Gentiles who call on his name, he he doesn't say these Gentiles are made Jews first, right? He says these Gentiles don't need to come under the law in order to become right with God. Verse 19 therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. The the fact that James is making a, a judgment, again, shows his position of authority. He seems to be that leader. And what he is saying is, man, we need to leave these Gentiles alone. God's doing a work among them. They're turning to God, and so we shouldn't trouble them. He's saying Peter and Barnabas and Paul, they're right. And this sect of the Pharisees, these Judaizers, they're wrong. And so the decision is that the Gentile believers shouldn't be under the Mosaic law. But there's also some practical instruction here. Because at the same time, these Gentile believers are living with Jewish believers, right? And, and, and there, there needs to be some harmony. How do we get along? And so the decision, again, is made. You don't have to be Jewish to be Christian. But the other side of the coin is you don't need to forsake the law of Moses in order to be a Christian, right? This is both sides. And he says there, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. In other words, he says, let's make this simple. Let's just, let's just give them four things, guys. Not 613 laws, let's give him four things, right? And each of these things were related to the ceremonial laws of Leviticus 17 and 18. But what's interesting is that three of them deal with dietary matters, right? And if those dietary matters are not addressed, Jews and Gentiles can't sit at the table and eat together, right? How many of you know it's important that we fellowship, we eat together, amen? Yeah. <laughs> that we spend time around the table together. And so he deals with these, he deals with sexual immorality, he deals with these kosher laws, because again, these are not aspects of the law that the Gentiles are under. However, James encourages them to lay down their rights as a sign of love to now their Jewish brother, right? Even though they're not bound under the law of Moses, they're bound under the law of love. And the law of love tells them, don't instigate your Jewish neighbors, okay? You're free, but don't go eating that cheeseburger in front of them. That's not good. Like, that's not right, right? Does that make sense? Both inside and outside the church is a certain way you want to deal with people in order to, it's the law of love. Verse 22, it says this, "'Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings.'" Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, they unsettled your minds, although we gave them no instruction to. But it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of their mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, so lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And he says this, if you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. I love that. He says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. So it's James that shares this decision of the council, but the unity behind the decision was evidence that the Holy Spirit was at work. And so the Holy Spirit spoke through James, confirmed it in the council. And here's what I love about the early church. They say it's the Holy Spirit that unites us. It's the Holy Spirit that directs us. And the issue seems to be settled right here in the early church that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and it's not by conforming to the law. Would you stand with me today as we prepare to close? Here's what I want you to understand, church, as we close our time in the Word today that obedience to Christ actually comes as a result of true faith. But it's after the issue of salvation has already been settled. Listen to how this concludes. So they were sent off. They went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Can you imagine for just a moment these these Gentile Christians? They knew there was something big going on in in Jerusalem. They knew there was this big decision that was going to be made and they're thinking... Man, is this council going to come and tell us that we were never really saved to begin with? Or are they going to decide that we need to be circumcised? I'll tell you what, that'll keep a man up at night thinking about that question, right? Are they going to decide that we need to be submitted to the law? Maybe we need to get prepared. And so when they hear this letter and, and it's read, they rejoice. And I can only imagine how relieved these believers were to see that the gospel of grace had won the day. They heard that they were indeed saved and they were indeed made right with God after all. There must have been sighs of relief by the Gentiles when they heard they didn't have to keep all 613 laws of Moses. Paul and Barnabas had got it right. They taught it right. His churches had the true understanding that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But what about you today? When you think of your own salvation, is it Jesus that saves you? Or do you think you save yourself with Jesus' help? It's a very big difference. Heads bowed around the room today. Maybe you're here and you've heard the gospel message, but it's been a message of, hey, clean yourself up. Get, Get yourself together. And then you can come to Jesus. But I wanna tell you today, it's faith alone in the finished work of the cross that justifies us, that allows us to, to come into a right relationship with God. And in that relationship with our heavenly father, he doesn't leave us alone. No, he, he transforms us, he changes us. And so with heads bowed around the room, I just wonder if there's anyone today, you've heard the message before, but you thought, "I there's some work I gotta do first. The queer message of the gospel of grace is it's by faith in the finished work of Jesus. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus to save, it's a free gift. Maybe by an upraised hand, you would say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I want to receive that free gift today. Praise God. I want to receive that that free gift of grace. Hallelujah. Again, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. Anyone else that would just say, Pastor, would you pray for me? Hallelujah. Well, let's pray together. I'm going to ask you, to repeat these words after me all together and it's not the words that we say as much as the posture of our heart we're surrendering to Jesus and so just repeat these words after me dear Lord Jesus I recognize I'm a sinner on my own I keep falling short and so today I trust in the finished work of the cross Lord Jesus, I believe you paid my debt. And so I receive forgiveness. I receive eternal life. I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we close today, I want you to think about how that early church rejoiced, and I want you to rejoice. I think we can all be thankful, amen? We can be very thankful that when it comes to our salvation that that Jesus already paid it all, amen? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And so if you believe that today, let's sing it out, amen? Let's rejoice in the gift of salvation, the assurance of salvation that we have today, amen? Let's worship him.